Dear Prudence. 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 Do you think that I should contact him again? Help. Help. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you. Welcome back to Dear Prudence once again. And as always, I am your host, Dear Prudence, also known as Mallory Ortberg. With me in the studio this week is all-around delight and literal angel, Jolie Care. I'm so excited to have her on the show. But first, I want to thank everybody who wrote in in response to uh, the letter from the tired asexual a couple of weeks ago, um, who had a number of things that they were sort of struggling with. But one of one of the biggest ones was just, uh, I'm sick of watching movies and reading books where it feels like uh, romance and sex are the sort of like main themes and sort of crowd out any other type of relationship, you know, and and I asked the the good asexual and aromantic listeners of the show to write in with anything that they would recommend for this person. And y'all delivered. Like, you guys are on it. You are, like, coming out in support of one another. And it sounds like you read a lot. So just, like, hats off to all of you out there. I just wanted to read through a couple of the things that you guys uh, sent in. I'm an aromantic asexual who is also super tired of we have to make two straight people kiss to sell seats, romance, and media, so I've recently turned to audio drama podcasts. It's been rare that I've listened to a podcast where romance was more important than personal growth or friendship. It was really affirming to get into audio drama as somebody who loves fiction but wasn't especially interested in hearing about other people kissing. There are seasons-long stories with no romance at all that have some of the best writing I've ever heard. Stories with asexual characters, plural, who are human beings who talk to each other and even asexual protagonists. It might be weird to recommend a podcast on a podcast. Side note, listener, no, it's not. It's great. I'll totally read your recommendation. Uh, But Wolf359 has no romance and is about a group of people who become a beautiful space family. And it does an amazing job exploring themes of communication and what it means to be a person. The Bright Sessions does have romance in it, but also two explicitly asexual characters who talk to each other. And the protagonist of Ars Paradoxica is canonically asexual. Podcasts. None of them are straight. Uh, then another person wrote in with like a list of some movies that had come out in recent years that they would recommend that either have uh, no romantic elements or really minimal ones. So again, I can't, you know, add like the Dear Prudence endorsement having not seen all of these, but for whatever it's worth, um, you know, original letter writer, uh, some other folks have enjoyed these. So some of the recommendations were Pacific Rim, Hot Fuzz, The Heat, Big Hero 6, the remake of Ghostbusters, Attack the Block, Secret of Kells, Now and Then, Stand By Me, Power Rangers, the 2017 movie, not the one that came out when I was in second grade, uh, Death Proof, Guardians of the Galaxy, The Avengers, Pete's Dragon, either version, I didn't know there were two, so there you are, uh, and The World's End. We're also going to add a bibliography and a filmography with this podcast when it comes out. So if any of you are listening and are like, that was too fast, I could not remember all of them, don't worry, you will be able to see this list in printed form. Some books that folks recommended were Beauty Queens by Libba Bray, Run by Cody Keplinger, We Are Okay by Nina LaCour, uh, The Inexplicable Logic of My Life by Benjamin Alira Sayens, Girls Made of Snow and Glass by Melissa Basherdust, Codename Verity by Elizabeth Wine, A Separate Piece by John Knowles, The Bone People by Carrie Holm, Discworld, all of the Discworld books by Terry Pratchett, uh, The Left Hand of Darkness by Ursula K. Le Guin. Uh, Last one is another recommendation of someone who said, I gotta throw in a plug for the ghost stories of M.R. James and the work of Edward Gorey, who described himself as probably asexual and has a wry, often dismissive view of romantic relationships. Also got to add Sherlock Holmes, Moby Dick, nonfiction adventure writing of the 19th century, like, for example, Endurance by Alfred Lansing, and a lot of classic sci-fi and fantasy like War of the Worlds. Uh, They also recommended the new Star Trek movies and Harry Potter, where the non-platonic romance is a sideline that feels a little bit aside from the main plot. Mad Max Fury Road. uh, They wanted to put another plug for Stand By Me, Local Hero, uh, and then some recent uh, fantasy films uh, like Pan's Labyrinth and then Beasts of the Southern Wild. And somebody else said they were a little mad at me for forgetting to recommend American Vandal, which is a show that I love very, very much uh, and I totally forgot about, which is a like parody of true crime investigative shows uh, about, uh, you know, which teenager drew a bunch of dicks on the cars of a faculty parking lot of a Southern California high school. So, you know, depending on your your tolerance for 
you know, the question repeated over and over again, who drew the dicks? That may or may not be something that appeals to you. But yeah, there's a lot of stuff out there. Uh, I hope that you find it. And thanks to everyone who wrote in with their recommendations. With that out of the way, I want to recommend Jolie back. She is a cleaning expert, an advice columnist, and host of the podcast Ask a Clean Person. She's also the author of the New York Times bestselling book, My Boyfriend Barfed in My Handbag, and Other Things You Can't Ask Martha. Jolie, hello. Hi. Hello, Mallory. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me on the show. I'm so excited to be here. I'm, I'm excited to hear your voice. I am too. I've, I've been looking forward to this so much. I wish I could have found a Dear Prudence letter that also involved like a physical mess that somebody needed help cleaning up. But unfortunately, <laughs> the only messes we deal with on this show are emotional. Well, that's fine because I deal with a lot of physical messes on my show. So this is a nice little departure for me in a way. By the end of this episode, listeners will be clean in both body and mind. We will just purify ourselves and one another and we'll just have like perfectly made beds and, you know, tidy, tidy kitchens and neatly ordered emotional lives. I hope so. I don't think that's, that's what too I much want to for promise, everybody. Right? Like, no, I don't think so. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, the very and it's truly what I want for everyone. <laughs> yes. Uh, especially, I feel like almost every episode that I've done now in the last couple of months has started with a letter about sisters, which. I'm starting to realize now it might be a pattern. I don't know why I seem to be picking like sisterly drama to start every podcast with, but I think it's become a pattern. So I hope that you are like ready to, you know, help some some sisters out with one another. Uh, but I got to look for more brothers who are fighting. Where are all the fighting brothers? Hmm. Maybe they're just fighting in the more literal sense of fighting, like wrestling each other. My completely. And that like, doesn't require writing letters to advice columnists you know i do occasionally. they might be writing to me to ask how to clean blood up oh my gosh i do occasionally get a letter that's like and this ended in a fist fight what do we do now and i'm like i wish you had written sooner <laughs> um, but yeah this first one is about some sisters would you be so good as to read it for us i sure will uh the subject is sisterly anxiety dear prudence i'm worried about my 18 year old sister for the past year she has been dating someone with alcohol and mental health issues he drinks constantly, and she calls me crying about the many plans he's canceled. He once drove for over an hour to see her for her birthday and got out of the car too drunk to stand. More concerning is that he has told her that he has persistent, uncontrolled thoughts about hurting her. He has hinted that the thoughts manifest as voices in his head, but he is unwilling to seek treatment for fear of receiving a diagnosis of schizophrenia. It runs in his family. He also uses these thoughts to justify his drinking, saying that he has to suppress them somehow. He has not hurt her physically in the past, but I am worried for her. She told me that she thinks he might be dangerous, but she's committed to helping him and encourage him to work on getting better. I admire her understanding, but I can't stop thinking about her safety when she is with him. As her older sister, I've always made a point to check in with her about her relationships, offering her a place to talk. And I've tried to gently guide her towards asserting herself in her romantic partnerships. But generally, I think she should be able to make her own mistakes and learn from them. However, in this case, I feel stuck and scared. When we talk, she is able to make plans to draw boundaries and to reach out to others for support. But she never follows through. Is there anything I can do to help her stay safe? Woof. Yeah, I had a similar reaction when I read this. It's just... I feel the worry. Like, I'm worried. I'm worried, too. This sounds yeah. like a, a very, very scary situation on a lot of levels, um, including and especially that this is a um, that, that her that her partner is someone who is regularly getting behind the wheel of a car drunk. Um, right. And that's that's terrifying. I've I in my own personal life have been deeply affected by drunk driving. Um, it's a very concrete thing that I think she can begin to seize on in talking to her partner. Um, but there's so much else that's scary here. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's so clear that both a letter writer and their sister um, want to help him, want to support him, are, a ways, are aware of the ways in which like somebody suffering from a possibly untreated mental illness needs help and support, not simply um, like rejection and condemnation. I feel like they have mm -hmm. that covered. Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, I, I just want to kind of emphasize, don't let the compassion and empathy that you feel for him um, keep you from drawing boundaries or saying, if you cannot commit to not doing this thing, then I cannot be around you. 
Um, and and I, I think the the constantly driving drunk and the fact that he has told her he thinks about hurting her, those are the two most important things here, right? Like, absolutely. That's, that's what needs to be addressed. Like, um, he absolutely deserves and needs treatment both for his alcoholism um, and for the the uncontrolled, unwanted, intrusive thoughts about harming others. Um, mm-hmm. But in terms of what you and your sister need to focus on, those are the two things. Um, he could kill himself. He could kill other people. He could kill you. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't want to say that as if to say, like, um, uh, you know, he's about to do that. But these are very real red flags. Absolutely. 110 percent. I agree with that. Um, and that those are very concrete things to begin to address with him when she finds the strength to start to do that. It sounds like she's scared to even open the conversations that she knows right. she has to. Um, and, and whether that's partly out of actual fear of him, which is which is obviously valid given the situation, or also just fear of confronting a difficult situation or having a difficult conversation. Um you know, she has every right to be scared. And and her sister has a right to be scared, too. One thing that struck me about both of these sisters is that, in a way, they're they're handling kind of similar things in that they want to help someone they love, but you can't control another person's behavior. So the sister right. who's worried wants the sister in the in the volatile relationship to make changes. And the sister in the volatile relationship wants her partner to make changes. Right. But you can't control someone else's actions. Right. I, I, I totally, yeah, I'm, I'm right there with you, I think. And it's also hard when it sounds like what the younger sister is saying is like, I do think he might be dangerous, but I want to help him. Um, and helping someone does not necessarily mean staying in a relationship with them um, or being around them when they say things like, sometimes I think about hurting you or when you see them get out of a car and they can no longer stand. Um, and I understand that, you know, the letter writer is not going to be able to say you need to break up with him. Um, but I do think it's really important uh, for the letter writer to stress, you can call me um, if you feel unsafe when you are around him, like, um, you know, to to look into like, are there like women's resource centers like in the town that you live in? Are there like numbers that she has in her phone that she can call um, if he is in a crisis and she doesn't know how to handle it because she's not a mental health professional or a paramedic, you know, if he's like Mm -hmm. um, unable to stand. Um, So to to find and put her in touch with multiple resources and to talk through um, what do you need if in a moment he talks about hurting you um, or or he is drinking and driving? Like, like what's what's something that we can get you in touch with that's not just, I don't know what to do. Right. Absolutely. And I like the idea of, of arming her with resources before a crisis happens so that when she's in the crisis, she has a resource to call without having to figure out who to call. Yeah, absolutely. Like plan ahead. You you know that this is is going on for him. I'm going to put in a plug right now for Al-Anon for both of you. Um, because and, and if Al-Anon is like not an organization that you're comfortable with, um, just in the sense of like having a spiritual component, there are numerous secular um, alternatives to Al-Anon. And you can also absolutely work an Al-Anon program without having any sort of like um, like supernatural spiritual outlook. Um, but if nothing else, you will be around other people um, who know what this is like to to love somebody who is kind of um, in a state of emergency a lot of the time um, mm-hmm. and who can help you figure out what are ways that you can take care of yourself so that your life does not become a constant emergency. Um, I, I, I'm interested in hearing what you think because you, you talked about kind of having a personal experience with drunk driving. I'm just very aware like um, – I am reluctant to advise uh, listeners or or readers of the column to call the police, um, especially when there's a case like this of somebody with an untreated mental illness, because often, you know, bringing the police in does not always de-escalate a situation, um, can often lead to more violence. Um, But, you know, I'm also aware that like drunk driving um, kills people um, and it's incredibly dangerous. Um, do Do you have a sense of like, do you feel like this would be a situation where you would say that needs to at least be one of the options that's on the table? Um, I certainly I certainly think if you are aware of a an incapacitated driver, you you have I don't obligation is such a hard word. And I and I agree with you about the risks of bringing in the police. But 
the reality is, is that driving drunk is a crime. It's a crime that puts a tremendous number of people at risk. And I, I think you have to take that that so so seriously. I I you know as I said, it's been it's been a part of my life. Um, I would never want anyone else to go through what I went through because someone I love got behind the wheel of a car drunk. Right, and um, you know, for an hour, too drunk to stand. That's that's terrifying. You know, the number of accidents he could have gotten into during that drive is tremendous. It's terrifying. Um, And I think one of the things that might be helpful again here is to talk through, like for you, letter writer, um, if if you feel like, hey, if I see him and I know he's about to get behind the wheel or if he's just gotten out of the car and he fell out, um, I like if for you, you're like, that's the line I have to draw. That's where other people's safety takes priority. I would call the police in that situation. I think that's good to to think about in advance. Like what are situations where you would and would not do that? Um, and, and to talk about that ahead of time um, and uh, to, again, encourage your sister, like when you when you're there in those moments, um, you know, what do you feel like your options are? You know, mm-hmm. what are what are you know, is there something that he could do where you would say, I love you and you need to go get help and I cannot do that for you. So I have to set a boundary. Like, is there anything he would do that would make you say, I need to leave, even if it's just for the night, even if it's just for the day? Like, obviously, the best advice that I could give is I think your sister should end her romantic relationship with this guy, encourage him um, to seek treatment um, and to say, I cannot do that for you. I cannot do that, um, uh, like, while we are enmeshed with one another. But I also know just as the letter writer can't make their sister break up with this guy, I can't either. So that's that's my number one advice um, is encourage her to end the relationship. Yeah, that I think I think that ending the relationship is the ideal outcome. But of course, you can't you can't make someone do that. Right. And there's I think also that sense of I love him. Um, so I can't break up with him. And then also that fear of if I broke up with him, would I not be contributing to the further like stigmatization of, of people possibly suffering from, um, like, uh, intrusive thoughts or, or, uh, I, I don't, I don't think schizophrenia is like any longer the accepted term, but I don't know off the top of my head, um, what like names are used for that particular diagnosis. Um, and I just want to say, um, that's not the same thing. Like choosing to end a relationship because someone is regularly drinking and driving and has talked about harming you is not the same thing as, um, you know, turning your back on somebody who needs help. That's setting a healthy, appropriate boundary that prioritizes your own safety. Um, and Absolutely. it doesn't mean you're consigning him to like being abandoned and full of despair or that you're saying he is unlovable. That is taking care of yourself. So I think, number one, that's what you should encourage your sister to do. But then to also say, if you are not ready to do that today... Um, I still love you. I support you. I'm going to be here and I'm going to help you um, mm-hmm. so that it, she doesn't feel like, look, you either break up with him um, or I will no longer be around because that would put her, I think, in a worse position. So I agree. Um, yeah. One concrete thing I was going to suggest for the for the sister who's concerned, um, it, you know, is to is to say all of that. Um, not in a way that is is laying down directives or issuing ultimatums for her sister's behavior or choices. Um, but to say it clearly, but also to be really present in terms of checking in and not checking in, you know, every every day to say, what has he done today? Just to be there so that you have some comfort for yourself that at least on a regular basis, getting a text message from her or an email from her or, or something that tells you for your own comfort, older sister, that younger sister is OK, at least today. And of course, yeah. tomorrow could bring something new. Um, and it doesn't have to be a daily check in, but but just that regular, consistent communication so that you are comforted that she is OK. Yep. And I'll just say one thing that kind of leaps out at me here in this letter. Two things. One is I admire her understanding. Um, and I, I want to redirect that. I don't think that what we're talking about is understanding. I think what we're talking about is panic and enabling. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm not saying that because your sister's a bad person. She's terrified and she loves him and she wants to believe that it's going to get better. Um, but that's not understanding. That's not compassion. Uh, because he has said, I have these thoughts that, uh, you know, at least periodically I, I think about harming you. Um, I drink in order to not have those thoughts. But when I drink, I commit harmful actions like driving completely wasted. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm not willing to seek, you know, uh, medical treatment because I'm afraid I'll get diagnosed with something I already believe that I have. Mm-hmm. So 
when when your sister says I'm, she's encouraging to help him work on getting better, what I see is he is actively avoiding getting better. Um, he is avoiding Absolutely. the very treatment that could possibly help. So, Absolutely. Um, and, and then when and you that couple the, that— And that this, the younger sister is enabling that choice. Yes, that's not understanding. So let's let's call it what it is. And again, you don't have to say that harshly um, or or say that she's like an enabler or, or a bad person. Um, but but to just say, here's what I see from you, which is that he is actively avoiding treatment and drinking in order to manage his symptoms. Um, to me, that looks like he is not working to get better. What do you think is happening here? Like, how do you see this getting better? And not like putting her on the spot and grilling her, but kind of gently encouraging her to like play that tape through. Like, mm-hmm. how is this going to get better if right now his plan is I drink when these thoughts come up and I don't go to the doctor and I don't seek professional mental help? So, you know, you already have had some of the conversations that we encourage. Like, we we plan on drawing boundaries. We plan, plan on reaching out. And then she doesn't do it. Like, ask her about that. Say, like, you know, I say this out of love. I say this out of concern. We talk about plans. Um, and then th- th- you don't do them. Can you, mm-hmm. do you do you do you have a sense of why that is? Like, what happens in the moment? Do you feel embarrassed? Um, do you kind of get so anxious about fixing the crisis in front of you that you kind of forget? Um, would it help to write it down? Like, what's what's the missing element here um, that's keeping this from happening? Um, you know, have those conversations because it may be that she just kind of needs help realizing, like, ah, I am not actually helping. Um, I am doing the same thing over and over again and hoping that things change. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, this conversation may not immediately result in in change, but it will be good to have that conversation. And and then I think just for both of you, and you can't make her go to Al-Anon, but you can certainly find a meeting for yourself and go. Um, and just if nothing else, talk to other people who have been through something similar um, and can offer you emotional support. Um, and, and I think most importantly, to really think through for yourself, um, if I see or hear about him driving drunk, will I call the police? And if so, I need to know that ahead of time, um, you know, and, you know, that's a big thing to do. But I also, um, you know, what you described, driving an hour, falling out of the car, people can die. And that, I think, is the most important thing. Your sister could die. Again, I don't, like, you just, this is serious. Like, I, I don't know what your relationship's like with your parents. I don't want you to say, like, immediately go, like, tell the personal details of her private life to anybody and anybody else. But this is not something to sit and wait on, you know, like this is the kind of thing where, um, you know, if you heard, and I hate to like do like a big scary thing, but like if you heard tomorrow that he had killed her, um, you would think he said he was going to hurt her. Um, and gosh, I, I apologize. I feel like that makes it sound like if you don't immediately put him behind bars, you are responsible for her future death. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying you do have really clear, actionable evidence that he needs help. He is not getting and he is not trying to get. Um, right. And then he that he is in danger. The sister's in yep. danger. Strangers are in danger. And other people are in danger because he's getting behind the wheel of a car, fall down drunk. Yeah. And yeah, you know, like there are things like, you know, involuntary psychiatric holds, which again, like, I sure don't love recommending those things. Like those are not perfect solutions. They don't fix underlying issues, but that needs to be something that you investigate and consider and talk about with other people in your life and think through, is this something that I think might be necessary? How would I go about doing it so that you're not waiting until she calls you crying and saying, you know, we're in a car, he's driving, he's been drinking, he says that he, you know, is thinking about hurting me. What do I do? Again, I, I'm just really mindful of, I'm like kind of imagining worst case scenarios, but I I want you to have all the tools available at your disposal. I want you to have good plans of action. Um, you know, if you're not seeing a therapist right now, it might be really helpful to talk through this with somebody who could help you find other resources that are available both for him and for her and for yourself. Mm-hmm. And I'm just really sorry. This is a lot to be going through at 18. Yeah. Um, but I'm glad you're taking it seriously. Keep taking it seriously. Take it really seriously. This is not just um, like with some love. This and isn't just a crummy boyfriend. Pass. Right. Right. This is this is an issue of safety. Yeah. Whew. All right. This next one uh, is actually lighter, which is strange. Yeah. It has to do with like group depression. Um, but it is, it is, it is, we're taking it a It is step. a bit lighter. <laughs> yeah, it is. So the subject line of this one is just bringing each other down. And yet I feel like this letter is already lifting me up. So thank you, letter. Dear Prudence, I'm having a problem with my group of friends. 
The problem isn't with them exactly. I love them all, and they're wonderful people. The problem is that, as a group, we all suffer from various mental health issues, and it's collectively weighing on me. I specifically suffer from depression and anxiety. Basically, all of my friends are depressed, and many of them also suffer from anxiety. As members of the LGBT community, we have a lot of other things in common, and I also know that statistically, we're more likely to have these kinds of mental health issues. I've been taking steps in my life to improve my health, though I can't currently afford therapy. I've been working regularly and keeping to a routine. I've quit drinking and casual smoking. I don't blame my friends for not taking similar steps. We're all in different situations, and I've been in many of their positions before, and I still also have bad days. It's clear they're trying their hardest to pull through each day, and in some cases, they're just dealing with worse issues than I am. The problem, though, is the effect this is having on me. I feel like I'm in an echo chamber of depression. I know that's not my responsibility to counsel my friends, but I often find myself in situations where they're looking to me for advice. I've tried being clear on some occasions that the things that they want to discuss are too triggering or that I don't feel comfortable, and they generally respect those boundaries, but I haven't found it to help all that much. When I look around at my friends, everything just seems a little more hopeless. If everyone I love is feeling terrible about everything, doesn't that mean everything is a little terrible? I've tried meeting other people outside of this group, but generally find that since they aren't affected by similar issues to me, I resent them or feel uncomfortable in their presence. Particularly cis and straight people are less relatable to me. Do you have any tips for feeling positive when everyone around me is feeling negative? And how can I continue to support my friends at this time while also, take, while also taking care of myself? Okay, so this wasn't like a laugh riot. Um, no. I just, I just, I feel like there are options for this letter writer that yes. are going to help. Um, yes, and I I'm agree. just glad that I don't have to worry about anybody driving. Um, I, I related to this letter. Did you relate to this letter? I sure did. I sure yeah. did. I think, you know, group dynamics are, are, they are so real. And when you're around a group of people who are all, um, doing things that, that they're interested in, that make them happy, um, that that lifts you up. And when you're around people who are unhappy and who hate everything, that that brings you down. It's it's real. And I think it sounds like I I related to one very specific thing about this, that this this letter writer um, is the person in the group who people lean on for guidance and advice. And I feel that. And it and it made me think then this may be projecting or it may be that this is the the role or a trait of the person who plays that kind of role in a friend group. Um, I'm a, I'm an emotional sponge. And when someone I care about is down, I feel very sad. I feel that very, very deeply and profoundly. So I really related to this. I also suffer from depression and anxiety myself. And so that that felt, you know, like, oh, yeah, I know that for sure. Mm -hmm. um, it's a, it's a tricky one. I don't I, I want to hear what I want to hear what your initial reaction was. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I felt this one a lot. This is something that I think I, I hear a lot about. I can certainly relate to elements of this. Um, uh, and I think that there are kind of a number of options uh, that the letter writer has. Um, but the, like the kind of the crux of the problem, right, is that I feel like the people that I relate to the most, um, who I feel safest sharing, you know, the intimate details of my life that like the world at large is not always a safe place for. Um, so like a pretty important community. It's not just like I enjoy their company the most. It's like there's there's a core part of my identity that is, um, you know, safest here uh, mm -hmm. are also the people who kind of collectively weigh on me. Um, and when I have tried to make friends outside of the group, I've felt an internal sense of resentment and alienation. Um, so there's this kind of sense of like, man, even when I try to take steps outside of it, um, that doesn't work great. And so I just want to say that sounds really difficult and I'm really sorry. I'm so glad that you are working. Uh, I'm glad that you're um, like working on um, figuring out a relationship to drinking and smoking that is healthy and good for you. Um, and I'm glad that like when your friends ask you for a lot of advice, um, you say, I just can't do that. And just I just want to encourage you keep doing that and, and just keep going with like practices in the mirror of just like, I can't talk about that right now. Or like, nope, I don't have any advice. I can't discuss that with you. Like, just get really used to saying those things and to not saying them with an apology or a caveat or a sort of implicit promise of like, try again later. Um, I, I just think it is so good um, for almost every listener who who writes in about stuff like this to just get really comfortable saying things like no without uh, an explanation or an apology, like that that is so, so normal and so okay. Mm-hmm. 
But you're you're kind of already getting a handle on these things. So the, the question is, how do I deal with this echo chamber and how do I deal with the feelings of resentment that I have when I try to step outside of this group? Because what I want for you, letter writer, um, is is not a life where every time that you are, encounter a cis or a straight person, you feel resentful and unable to connect. Like, I would want you to have a wonderful, like, center core group of queer and trans community and to also be able to develop friendships um, with cis and straight people uh, that maybe did not share that deepest connection, but that did not feel like, I can't understand what your life is like. I feel like you don't understand mine, and I don't know how to see my way through to a relationship with you. Um, So if part of the problem is just when you meet someone who's not sad, you're kind of upset with them for not being sad, like that's something worth sitting with. That kind of makes sense. And that might say a little bit something about where you're at right now, which is I can only identify with people who are struggling um, and not just like having a difficult time in life, but like emotionally flailing. Um, and I want to be around people who are doing uh, like well and kind of like tending to their own garden, as people say. But when I do, <laughs> I actually kind of get mad at them. Like, how dare you be safe, comfortable, well-adjusted right now when so many people I care about aren't? Um, you know, you say that you can't afford, afford therapy, but this might even just be helpful to journal about. Like, just like write down, like, when I run into these people who I would like to cultivate a friendship with and this resentment comes up, um, what do I resent them for? What do they have that I feel like they don't deserve? Um, what do they have that I wish I had? Um, what, why do I feel like if they have this that it's taking something away from me? And it might just be helpful to write some of those feelings down to just get a stronger sense of like, what is this bringing up in me in those moments? Um, and are there strategies that I can employ to try to let that go? And that doesn't mean that every like whistling straight person who's just like skipping merrily down the street, you need to like make your best friend. Um, <laughs> but I, th- I think there is a kind of happy medium between somebody who's just not doing well, not getting the support and resources they need versus somebody who's like, my life's fantastic. I've never suffered as a result of my identity and I'm happy all the time. Like, mm-hmm. um, you know, continue to seek out people who can kind of balance like um, experiences you find relatable, um, who are maybe not on top of the world all the time, but in general seem to be taking good care of themselves. And I'm going to put a plug in for just like solitude. Like if you're having kind of a tough time with your queer friends and with potential, uh, you know, other friends, um, set aside some time throughout the day or if the day is too much throughout the week to like take a walk by yourself or to be with an animal or to go somewhere and do something that you enjoy uh, where nobody is asking anything of you. Um, Mm -hmm. Because even if you can't be around lots of other people right now, you can go recharge with yourself um, Mm -hmm. and at least be in a situation where, you know, for the next hour, no one's going to need me for anything. I think the letter writer is already doing a a pretty tremendous job of self-care already. I mean, I know I know that there's more self-care to be found in, in terms of especially dealing with this particular group of friends. But, you know, I really want to say good, good job at self-care. Um, you really already are doing a lot to protect yourself and to feed yourself and and make yourself the strongest and best person you can be. I would maybe add into the things that you're already doing around setting setting boundaries and making lifestyle changes that benefit you. Um, I would add another thing to it, which is, uh, I mean, it sounds it sounds facile and maybe a little bit hokey, but a hobby that mm, uplifts yes. you. Yes. Yes. And that maybe and that maybe some of the members of your existing group of friends want to participate in with you that then becomes a positive thing you all do together. So whether that's maybe you take up roller derby or maybe you all take up knitting and you I love knit that you're together. just listing the queerest or, hobbies that people have. <laughs> well, someone on Twitter today suggested that I take up roller derby, so it's on the brain. Um, you would be like, amazing. Dude, I would not, Mallory. You know me, IRL, and I am the biggest klutz in the world. So, <laughs> but I'm like, not you would bring so much joy and energy, and you would have the best roller derby name and the best outfits, and you would help. I was just going to say, I'll have the best outfit, out of their uniforms or whatever <laughs> outfit uniform. I don't know what they wear. They actually, and that that's one thing that um, that I said in response. I was like, oh gosh, imagine all of the all of the dirty wash water I could produce out of washing those pads because I've written about roller derby oh, gear. Um, actually, my, to, to sidebar for a second about roller derby, the two most common sports that I'm asked about in terms of cleaning, you know, sports gear is number one is hockey and the second one is roller derby. Yeah. Yeah. That makes total sense. Yeah. Um, and then I think kind of just one other thing that's going to be helpful because you care about your friends so much and you want them to 
be well and to be looked after and to be looking after themselves. And all those are really, really good things. But I think the most important internal limit that you're going to have to hold, and you'll just have to remind yourself of this a lot, um, is just, I can't do this for them. And it, like, I think that sounds really trite. Um, and it's one of those things that we're all like, yes, 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 I know. But like when you see a friend who is suffering and you have already like, you know, talked about options that they may have. You have already expressed emotional support. You're already doing this sort of like baseline friendship work that's handled um, to just pause and say internally to yourself, I'm letting this go. I mm-hmm. wish them well. It's up to them to address this because you just Absolutely. can't, right? Like this whole group of friends, you cannot drag them all into happiness. Like they're going to have to manage their own depression and anxieties, possibly their whole lives long. Um, And so to just remind yourself, I can't feel this for them. I can't fix it for them. And you know that. But just that's that real sense of in this moment around this issue, um, you know, if if I were suddenly like called away to the moon tomorrow, they would find a way to live their life without me. And that's not always like a helpful way of thinking like nobody needs me. I'm, I'm totally, you know, dispensable. But just this reminder of like they can and will figure something out for themselves and um you 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 know when you feel when you take that weight on for other people it it as you know it 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 drags you down in a way that's not like ah oh, being around sad people is a burden it's in meshing myself too much with somebody else's current emotional state does not help them at all and makes me feel worse uh, and right. therefore you know makes me even less well equipped to be a good friend right I think she's doing a great job already of leading by example. And I think that in terms of tactical advice, continuing to lead by example, by like leveling up on her boundaries and her choices that she's making and just demonstrating to her friend group that, you know, this is possible because you're watching me do it will will probably help the situation. And in terms, I wanted to mention something when you were talking about journaling, I've, I found I, I, did a lot of journaling through a difficult situation somewhat recent in the past year or so. Um, I found it hugely helpful in a way that I was I was so surprised at. Um, and so I, I want to co-sign on that recommendation. Yes. But I also want to say that it may it may be helpful for her to to list out the members of the friend group and to think about where they fall because they're not all equally bringing her down. There may be one or two who she really needs to set firmer boundaries with. And there may be, you know, two two or three who aren't as demanding on her and her emotions. And if she can sort through that clearly and make it clear where where she can sort of silo maybe some of the people who are bringing her down a bit more. Um, that might also be helpful because it sounds like she's thinking of it as this this kind of amorphous group that it's all happening, but it can't be, right? Right. Like we're the community. We rise and fall together, which can be very useful politically, uh, but very difficult when it comes to managing individual emotional equilibrium. So, yeah, that can certainly that may certainly be helpful. And for me, for what it's worth, I'm a terrible journaler. I will journal like for five minutes if I'm in an absolute crisis. And the whole time I'm like, I hate mm-hmm. this. Same. So, you know, if you're at all like me, do something really targeted, you know, do two or three questions. Ask yourself, like, what am I afraid of in this moment? What do I resent? What do I think I'm not going to get? Something along those lines. Uh, and then call it a day. Don't feel like you have to sit down and like fill five pages with your like deepest inner thoughts. Right. Like get to the heart of what's going on with you and then, you know step away. Yeah. Um, but I, I think, too, just the the one other question that I'll address, which is, if everyone I love is feeling terrible about everything, doesn't that mean everything is a little terrible? Um, and the answer to that is no. Uh, one of the difficult things about depression is that it warps reality. Um, and this is, like, maybe the most, like, I'm Fraser Crane, I'm listening sort of thing <laughs> I've ever said. But, like, feelings aren't reality. They're feelings. And I have a really hard time with this. Every time I have a feeling I'm convinced this is the only feeling I'm ever going to have for the rest of my life, and this is going to be the feeling that kills me. And I have been wrong about that every single time. I have never been correct about that. Um, So if everyone you love feels terrible about everything, that means everyone you love is depressed. That's all that means. Um, And depression is not... um, untreatable. That's not to say that like you can just throw time and money and pills and fix it right away, but there are treatments and things that can help moderate and mitigate depression. Um, depression can sometimes ebb and flow. Um, not everyone is equally depressed all the time. Uh, so it's a, it's a real you know part of reality, certainly. And there are elements of life that are awful, objectively. Um, 
But that's also not the, your worst feelings aren't your truest feelings. And I think especially when we're depressed, we feel that way. We're like the worst things are the most true things. And if we're all this depressed, it's because life is this bad. And even trying to address it would just be an exercise in futility. And that's just, you know, that's the voice of depression speaking. And so it can help sometimes to just say neutrally to yourself like, oh, I know what that voice is. That's the voice of depression. Mm-hmm. I don't have to kick it away. I don't have to beat myself up for having that voice in my head. But I can identify it. I can name it. I can say, oh, hello, depression. Like, you're speaking to me. You're one of many, many voices. Um, you are not the voice of ultimate truth. Um, and that might help in that moment, too, when it when it's tempting to think, like, everything is just very, very bad. And the best we can do is sort of cling to one another in a heap of feeling terrible. Um, and that will be our lives. Um, so, you know, congratulations on the stuff you're already doing really well. Keep doing it. I hope some of these strategies are useful to you. You do not have to make, like, five new chipper best friends tomorrow. But, you know, be on the lookout for people who are um, happy, engaged, self-sufficient emotionally in a way that attracts you rather than kind of turns you off. Um, and, you know, spend a little time with them. And it doesn't mean you're going to get lunch five times a week, but maybe it means you grab coffee or have a slightly longer conversation uh, than you might otherwise. Um, and take some space for yourself. I love being alone. Everyone should be alone a little bit more often, unless they hate it, in which case they shouldn't. Totally agree. Also, take up roller derby. <laughs> take up roller derby. All right. So uh, opposite problem now, which is, uh, you know, I know exactly what I want out of this emotional situation. <laughs> And I just need help, like, getting there. Um, Would you please read this one? I sure will. The subject is relentlessly friendly neighbor. Dear Prudence, we've lived in our neighborhood for four years. And since the day we moved in, our neighbor has been trying to forge a friendship with us. I can't stand being around her for more than 15 minutes. She's not a bad person, but she's loud, pushy, and opinionated. We've attended cookouts at her house and have invited her to similar neighborly gatherings at ours out of politeness. But I've been avoiding invitations to get our nails done or see a movie one-on-one. That day won't work for us. I'm so busy at work right now. The moon is in the wrong phase that night. If anyone had avoided me for this long, I'd have left them alone long ago. Yet here we are, four years in, and just this week she suggested a date night for me and my partner with her and her husband. What kind of recourse do we have here? The daily dance of avoidance is tiresome. Is this a suck-it-up-or-move situation? I can't imagine a delicate but direct way to tell someone that you're just not interested in spending quality time with them, but I'm open to suggestions. Oh, man. I got to say, I really admire, which is maybe not the best work, the best, the best word, the degree to which people will write letters, not just about boyfriends, but just anyone, and they will say, this person's not bad, and then they will describe five bad things. <laughs> I was going to say the exact same thing. I was like, no, she's she is bad. I mean, yeah. she's not like serial killer bad, but she's sure. pushy and loud and opinionated. Well, I guess I'm all those things too and I'm <laughs> But it doesn't sound like in this way, right? Like <laughs> no. Yeah. It's it's okay to give yourself permission to say I don't like her. You don't have to sort of like I'm sure she's fine. Like Yes, it's clear that you are not, like, consigning her to the ash bin of history, but you don't like her. You don't think she's a good person, and you don't want to be around her. So don't—I think part of what's holding you back is this sense of she has not sufficiently committed enough atrocities that I would feel justified in saying, like, I have to go, Marion. Stop talking to me, right? Which I think sometimes we can get where we feel like unless someone does something beyond the pale, I can't set a boundary. So I have to keep, like, re-explaining why they're they're not bad enough for me to be, like, rude to. yeah, I, I, it's rough when somebody does not respond to cues the way that we ourselves would. Um, certainly, I think it is unusual that she has failed to pick up on like, you know, oh, sorry, the moon exploded last night, so I can't come look at art with you or whatever. Uh, like, that's rough that she hasn't picked up on that. But that means you have to step it up, right? Like, yeah, that means again, yeah. you don't have to just, like throw stuff in her lawn, but just start cutting the conversation short. Don't wait for her to stop talking and look for an out. That's not going to work with her. Say things like, I have to go. Uh, I can't do that. I'm not available. No. Um, Not excuses. Just, no, I can't do that. I'll see you. Like, go with like, no, I can't do that. Goodbye. And say it nicely. That was... That was exactly what I was going to say. You 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 have to stop saying like, no, I'm sorry. I have plans at night. It has to just be no thank you. Yep. And just keep it moving. So say like, no, I can't. And if she tries to draw you into something, she's like, I have to go. Bye. Um, 
yeah. you know, uh, escalate your rudeness because I have to go by is barely rude. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, you are still well within the rights of like, and if she tries to like, oh, gosh, I'm so surprised or like, what's going on? You don't have to engage with that. Just just continue to say things like, I don't have time. I have to go. Goodbye. Mm-hmm. Um, say it all the time. Um, and even if she doesn't get the hint, you can say those things and leave so she can go deal with her feelings elsewhere. Um, and you don't have to worry about it. Don't let her like if her face falls or if she says, wait, explain this to me. Um, you don't have to do a thing about that. Yeah, I that that's that was exactly what I was going to say. <laughs> I don't, and I don't think I have anything else constructive to add to it. I think you just got to say no. Yeah, just move on. And, which and, we're going to do right now. And exactly. Like, keep it. Do it. Keep it moving. Keep it moving. Yeah. Don't be delicate. Just don't be a bitch, you know? Like, right. No, because you don't, you know, the last thing you want is an infuriated neighbor because that can right. escalate. But like, then, you're you know, not. Then, then you're, then you're Rand Paul and you're getting, you know, yeah, not knocked off your riding lawnmower. Here. Yeah. Be direct. Don't be a jerk. Like, don't say like, and fuck you. That's, that's all you need to do to stay not rude is just, I don't have time for this conversation. I have to go. No, I can't make it. Goodbye. Say those things. Say them in a slightly nicer tone than I just said it. That's it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Our last letter. Oh, this is the one that I have thoughts about. Well, you know, you see the subject line and you're like, well, based on what I remember from this particular reference, uh, that's not a good way to be feeling. So the subject is just feel like Pepe Le Pew. Dear Prudence, my wife and I have been married for 35 glorious years. We are both 65. Our marriage is strong. We have always had great sex until last year. In January, she decided she did not want to have sex anymore. She really did not state this as a firm decision, but she has since rebuffed my many attempts over the past 12 months to start anything. I thought the problem could be physical, researched menopause, and purchased some interesting products for her to try out. So far, though, those products are sitting unopened by the bed. I have tried my old standby never-fail moves, and she tells me she is too tired, or it's too late, or too early, or her neck hurts. We've had discussions about this, and she just laughs it off. The problem, though, is that I don't see the humor in the situation. I have mentioned that given her reluctance and my eagerness that maybe we should involve a counselor, but she rejects that idea, too. I am getting desperate. Any ideas? Do you have any ideas? I have many ideas. Um, first of all, I want to I want to say that there are a lot of things about this man that I that I really like. And um, I want to I want to preface the next few things that I'm going to say by by starting with that, because I don't want I don't want it to sound like I'm just coming down on him with a sledgehammer. I I think that he is handling a difficult situation quite well and with good intent and with kindness and love. But I think he has mishandled the situation and I think he has overlooked something that to me seems so obvious, which is that I think, sir, that your wife is having an affair. (gasps) Oh, I got a gasp out of you, Mal. I did not see that coming. I thought something totally different. What did you think? I thought she's just done having sex. She's 65. They've been married for 35 years. I'm not saying, by the way, that everyone. Mallory, that's not the way the libido works. Is done. But I thought she. No. She just is done. She's wrapped up. She had 35 years and, and her sex drive is like winding down. Um, could be wrong. Nope. Could be an affair. Nope. I don't think that's what's happening. Okay. And the thing is, is that if it, if it, if it were. So now, now I'll get into some some nitty gritty things that I that I want to say to this guy. I, I I know you really really mean well, but you have you have wildly missed the mark and so many things here, my friend. Um, and we got to set you a little bit straight. First of all, um, at age sixty five, the symptoms of menopause aren't uh, going to suddenly be affecting your. Your marital relations. Oh, by the way, um, I, as soon as I saw that, I was like, wait a minute, what's the average age of menopause? And I looked it up. It's 51. Like, it's 51. Your wife is well past menopause. She did not right. just enter menopause. Exactly. And there and there are I mean, there are many, many symptoms um, and there is a, a, you know, a wide range of even within those symptoms, how they affect certain women. Um, some women do experience a real decrease in libido some experience a a small decrease it 
It can fluctuate throughout the course of menopause. Just because menopause happens at 51 doesn't mean that the effects of menopause aren't felt at 65. Certainly, many of the physical effects like vaginal dryness or loss of libido are things that that will continue on um, in, into, you know, your 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 twilight years, if, if we will. Um Right. Yeah. I'm sorry, too. I don't want to make it sound like I'm just like, obviously, she's just done having sex, as happens to everyone when they turn 65. I just (laughs) wanted to throw that out there as a possibility because it sounds like that might be where she is coming from. But thank you for saying that. And it it sure is. It just seems to me that all of a sudden, unless unless she had menopause very, very late, um, and, and the loss of libido isn't that abrupt, um, I mean, it can be, of course, but uh, it just it just seems to me that the the timeline isn't really adding up. Um, and then I want to I want to point out a couple other other things that he did that, again, with with great intentions. And I and I admire his bravery in confronting the situation, um, because really, it does take a tremendous amount of bravery to do the things that he's been doing, to have these conversations, to research this on his own. Um but See, going I don't think out they've and been having conversations, I think they had one and then she's kind of laughed stuff off. And instead of saying like, hey, this feels really serious to me. I need to talk to you about this. He was like, I'm going to go do my own research. I'm going to buy toys, but I'm not going to like really like kind of insist on a frank conversation of like, do you see our sex life as having a future? And if you're done, you know, why is that? And and how are we going to renegotiate the terms of our marriage? It feels like they kind mm-hmm. of had the conversation and then he sort of like went off into a panic on his own. I kind of read it maybe a little differently. He said, you know, we've had discussions about it. Um, and then he mentions that he had suggested counselor. So it sounded to me like this is a thing that they've talked about more than, you know, more than one or two times at least. And and, and maybe I'm wrong about that. Um, the going out and, and purchasing the products. Uh, I wish he had been a, a little bit more specific about the products that he had purchased because I'm, I'm assuming I'm, just like one, one I'm curious I don't know yeah um, maybe it's, I assume maybe it's like banana stuff maybe it's like a sex car I I assume it's probably not banana stuff I I assume it's probably some sex toys and probably some lube and you know because he said he was doing his research about menopause and you know again vaginal dryness is one big symptom um so certainly you know personal lubricant and stimulating creams and those kinds of things um would would sound like probably about what he what he purchased. And and I on the one hand, I, I love that he did all this research and he went out and he and he bought these things, but also he bought them without involving her in it. And so of course they're sitting unused. She might not have any interest in the things he bought her because he didn't involve her in it. Right. If I tell someone I don't want to have sex anymore and they say later, even if it's really well-intentioned, hey, I bought you some sex toys, I feel like you did not listen. Absolutely. And again, it's well-intentioned, but like I I can see why that didn't work. That was not an effective Mm -hmm. strategy. I think the best strategy is to like have conversations and if if real ones, not just like bring it up and then let her laugh it off. Um, and obviously you can't force someone to like share what they're thinking and feeling, but she's been your wife for 35, as you say, glorious years. Like um, really say like, I take this really seriously. I want to know more about what's going on with you. This is like a really big change in our marriage after 35 years. And I don't understand why. Um, and it doesn't seem like this feels like a problem for you. And I just want you to know, like, I feel rejected and confused and like, I don't know what you're thinking. Um, mm-hmm. Can we talk about that? And it is a problem for me. I mean, I think he I think he needs to clearly state this is a problem for me. Right. Sex is is a part of a, a romantic relationship, whether that's a marriage or, or a partnership. It It's not it doesn't have to be. But certainly it's an expectation. And if one partner is going to take that out of the equation, it needs to be addressed in some way. It needs to be squared with the other partner and there needs to be some solution to it. Whether that's, I mean, I don't know that we need to go so far as to say, you know, run right into an open marriage or or pick up a mistress or something like that. But I mean, maybe, maybe that is the agreement that they come to that. She, you know, she, you may be right. She may just say, I'm done. Like, I'm, I've done you for 35 years and I'm done doing you. And in which case, then, 
I mean, he's enti- he is entitled. He's not entitled to sex, but they're entitled to talk about it. And he's entitled to have his feelings about it. I, I think one of the things right. that's always hard about yeah. stuff like this is like we always kind of want to say like a sex life is really important to like your happiness and well-being. And of course, if something's not working, you should talk about your other options. But I also want to just acknowledge like um, there's not always a fix for everybody. And there's not, and that doesn't mean there's not more you can do, but there's not always going to be like, I can guarantee you, either your wife's going to give you a really satisfactory explanation, you guys can fix whatever discrepancy there is between your current sex drives, or you will be able to open up your marriage and like at 65, after 35 years of marriage, just roll into that super casually, feel great about it, and meet somebody who also wants to have sex with you. Like that, there's no guarantee that you will find a mistress or that an open marriage will work. Um... I think the most important thing for the letter writer to say to his wife is this. About a year ago, you didn't say this firmly, but you said something along the lines of, I don't want to have sex anymore. Um, And I don't know why you said that. I don't know where you're coming from. And since then, when I have attempted to reestablish sexual intimacy between us, you've told me, you know, that you're tired or it's too late or it's too early or your neck hurts. Um, And that did not used to be the case every time I tried to have sex with you over a year-long period. I think there's something else here. I would love to know what that is. Will you please share that with me? I think that's the question to ask is like there's some information here that you're holding back either because – you think I won't want to hear it? Because you're having an affair. (laughs) Or because you're having an affair. And ask, like, are you having an affair? Like, put that out there on the table. Ask. Yeah, I think you got to ask. I, yeah. I mean, honest to God, I think you got to ask. Yeah, like ask, are you having an affair? Do you not want to have sex anymore? And were you kind of hoping I would just not notice? Because I got to tell you, I've noticed and I think about it a lot. And I would rather have the painful conversation if it turns out we both want really different things or you feel about something differently than I do. I would rather know that because I love you and I want to know you um, than to have to guess on my own. So that's, I think, the the way that you got to play this one is just point those things out and ask that question and say like and please don't laugh this off because it it it's painful to me um mm-hmm. and hopefully yeah. she can kind of see that um you guys can have a real conversation and let us know if you do if you do and um let us know what you you guys think might be going on and um how that how that is able to to move ahead but you got to you got to find out God the sex please toys let us know going to be the solution Please let us know cuz I'm going to I'm going to lose sleep wondering if this lady's having an affair I think I've I think I've completely con- con- convinced myself that she is. Uh, I'm going to lose sleep trying to think of your roller derby name. Okay, I like that. I bet you're going to come up because with it's going to have to have something to do. It's going to have to have like some sort of cleaning pun um, in it. Obviously, but obviously, it's like my Real Housewives tagline. Go on, which is I. <laughs> I might be a clean person, but that doesn't mean I won't fight dirty. Oh my god! I know is that so good? <laughs> oh, you would have to open every like uh, what do they call it when you play a game of roller derby? Like you'd have to open every like tournament or whatever with that line. Yeah, god, that'd be so- or like, and then you're like, like the thing that you toss off before commercial is like, I'm gonna wipe the floor with you. Oh god! Oh Mallory, that's so good. There's you're also so gotta be something about like moving swiftly and using a Swiffer, Taylor Swiffer. I don't know. We're gonna keep working. Okay. On this. <laughs> Taylor um, Swiffer, oh my god! We're gonna make something happen, and it's gonna be the incredible. irony that I love Taylor. I love Taylor Swift, but I hate Swiffers. Is, is perfect. I, for I that should one. have known actually that you would have a really strong opinion about like the kind of stuff people buy to avoid owning like a mop. Um, yes, I sure do. I sure do. Are you pro mop? Do you endorse mops, or is there a better way of like wet cleaning the floor? Oh God! The, Sorry, you're I kill know me I'm for like, this. You're, uh, you're, it's gonna be the end of our friendship. You're gonna be like Jolie. You're bringing me down. No, I'm I'm here for it. I actually do not love mops, but before I say what I what I like recommend for people, I want to say that there is definitely a place for mops in this world, um, and there are some very good mops. Um, so I'm not I'm not completely virulently anti mop, but I'm a proponent of washing the floors on your hands and knees, and I even call it handsies and kneesies. I have a cute little name for it. Um, it sounds like handsies the most horrible. And Handsies and kneesies. Um, it I sounds like you. the most. Hor- I know you do. I love um, you. <laughs> it sounds like the most horrible chore in the world. But actually, when you try it one time, you realize like oh, it's actually not quite as bad as I thought it was going to be. And it gets the floors so clean and it's so satisfying. And then there's dirty wash water and you can take a picture and you can tweet it at me and I will share it on my Twitter timeline every Wednesday for Wash Water Wednesday. Because the weirdest thing, 
Not even so the weirdest thing, but weird. one of... I love the ways in which you are weird. The world needs One it. of the weirdest things about this job is that people, every single week, do send me photos of their dirty wash water from doing the floors, from washing their bras, from cleaning their hockey gear. Hockey, hockey water is my favorite water in all the lands and all the seas. And they take these pictures and they, they tweet them at me and then I share them every Wednesday with the hashtag Wash Water Wednesday. And it's a thing now. Like, it's a big thing. Oh, my God. Bless you and keep you. And I just hope your brand continues to flourish and you get all Thank the pictures you. of dirty water that you want for the rest of your life. Thank you, my friends. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on the show and for inspiring me to go home and tidy my own house, um, which is actually pretty clean right now. I, I feel good. Oh, good. I like to hear that. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm keeping it reasonably, reasonably clean these days. So uh, good. Yeah. I'm glad for you. I'm, yeah. I'm, you know, I people I want people to live exactly how they want to live because it also doesn't. And I don't mean this in a mean way, but it impact on my life how other people keep their home right um and the dirtier you all are the more work i have so that's great too um but i'm glad if it, if it makes your life better i'm really glad that you're doing that for yourself yep all right get out of here lady thank you so much this was fabulous thank you malice right. was fun bye for now thanks for listening to dear prudence our producer is max jacobs our theme music was composed by robin hilton don't miss an episode of the show head to slate.com slash dear prudence to subscribe And remember, you can always hear more Prudence by joining Slate Plus. Go to slate.com slash plus to sign up. If you want me to answer your question, call me and leave a message at 401-371-DEAR. That's 3327. And you might hear your answer on an episode of the show. You don't have to use your real name or location. And at your request, we can even alter the sound of your voice. Keep it short. 30 seconds. A minute tops. Thanks for listening.